Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. I can tell you everything about Main Man. Why and what and how and whether it was exciting or not. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. A very long, wonderful adventure. Hello and welcome to episode 13 in our series that explores the history of Main Man, a groundbreaking management rights company that became synonymous with the decadence and indulgences of rock and roll in the 70s and reshaped the business of music. The end of the 70s was way different from the beginning of the 70s. Main Man was formed by entrepreneur and empresario Tony DeFries, who worked with a diverse range of clients that included Amanda Lear, Dana Gillespie, David Bowie, Lou Reed, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Mott the Hoople, and Iggy Pop. The biggest positive influence on us here were, were really the Mark Bolin records that were being made at the time. Those were fine records. Then we were aware of what David Bowie was doing, of course, because he was someone we saw a lot of, and we'd always been keenly aware of everything Lou Reed did. In this episode, we're exploring the rivalry, the friendship, and the creative frisson that existed between David Bowie and Mark Bolin. Fifty years ago, in October 1970, Mark released the song that many music historians now cite as the catalyst that sparked the birth of glam, Ride a White Swan. Two minutes and 12 seconds of pure pop that was markedly different from anything else that was on the charts at the time. We'll be hearing from people who lived and worked with both David and Mark to find out how they inspired each other to push creative boundaries. First up, Tony DeFries sets the scene describing the music business in London in the mid-60s when David and Mark were among a handful of young singer-songwriters sharing dreams of stardom. So we have to remember that in the 1960s, when I started working with people in the music industry, it was a very, very small world in England. There were maybe 10 or 12 BBC disc jockeys, DJs they were called, people like John Peel and Bob Harris. There was a small area in London, Denmark Street, Soho, where music publishers congregated. Virtually everybody who was in the music business, especially the young ones, the teenagers, the Dillons, the Gillespies, the... Donovans, the people who were trying to make music, all knew each other. They all came across each other. They all hung out in the same places. Some of them were in the west of the country, down in Somerset or Devon or Cornwall. Some of them were in the north in Liverpool and, of course, Hull. Don't forget Hull. They all had some connection with each other and they all introduced each other to each other all the time you had a very small population of people and many of them became session players because there was no instant success in the music business so if you wanted to somehow get into the business you had to have a skill and your skill might be that you could sound like somebody else. Someone like Rod Stewart could sing like other people 
So singing like other people was a skill that you could use to make records for publishers or sometimes for people who wanted to put out a sound-alike record. And this is how a lot of the people who became successful in that era began. They began with essentially practicing other people's music and re-recording other people's songs. But every now and then, someone came along who had a unique idea about what song they wanted to write. But mostly those were groups of people rather than individuals. I began working with two school teachers from the south coast of England, South End on Sea actually, in the early, probably 1964, thereabouts, 1965, Jeff Stevens and Peter Eden. And they had written together two songs, Winchester Cathedral and There's a Kind of Hush. And these were recorded by Mickey Most, who was a producer that I was working with. And Mickey worked with lots of different acts. And so we got to know Jeff and Peter. And they brought Mickey Most, a young boy they'd found in South End on Sea, who was somewhat of a gypsy. His name was Donovan Leach, and he became known as Donovan. And Donovan had a very nice melodic approach. He would come up with happy, friendly, sunny melodies. He'd play them on a guitar and he'd make up songs. Sunshine, Superman, Jennifer, Juniper. All these very romantic, simple, but very heartfelt songs. And he was very pretty. He was a pretty boy, a good-looking boy. Mickey had made a number of these records into hits. And it was Donovan who influenced Mark Bolan to start writing those kind of songs. Mark took his lyrical influence from Donovan's songs, but he didn't have the same kind of emotional connection to his songs that Donovan had. Donovan, when he sang his songs, he meant them. He was a balladeer. He was the old English idea of somebody who went around and played a minstrel. Mark couldn't do that. Mark had to pretend to do that. He had to try. And the trying made it not quite real. Until he started working with Tony Visconti, he didn't really have an idea of how to, although he was a good guitar player, he didn't have an idea how to make it work, how to get the chords and the melodies to match up. And Visconti, who was very good at that, did that for him. I didn't meet Mark Bolan until after I'd worked with Donovan, probably late in the later 60s. And I actually met Mark through David because I first heard about him when David got very perturbed about his first single success and somehow felt that Visconti had betrayed him by working with Mark and giving Mark initially... That's a 
lower entry. I think it was an entry in the 20s or 30s. But by this time, Mark had turned himself into somewhat of a little elf. He was always small, so he had this elfish... And he had good features. He was pretty, very appealing to girls, especially young girls. And he had a nice style with a guitar. But it was always very dependent on the music. The music had to be catchy, poppy, fast enough to keep people entertained. There was very little depth in Mark's work. And so it was always chasing itself, trying to catch up, trying to keep the pace. And David was worried about it, but unnecessarily. He was completely different from Mark. He simply saw himself as in a competition, but there was really no competition between them, and it never concerned me, but it did very, very much concern David. So at certain times, their relationship was massively friendly, massively loving, massively supportive, and then other times it would become enormously jealous and critical and David would start playing Mark's records backwards and trying to find out what hidden messages were hidden in them and Mark would do the same thing and say is this song about me and perhaps the song was or was not about him Lady Stardust for example was a song that David almost certainly wrote about Lou Reed not Mark but Mark felt that it was about him, and David was never able to say yes or no, finally. But I'm quite sure it was more likely about Lou than it was about Mark Bolan. By the same token, Prettiest Star was originally written as a song for Angela, and then at some point, because David asked Mark to play on it, and Mark did a marvellous version of the guitar particularly his style on that song. But the song was never really intended to be a song for Mark. It was always a song for Angela. And when you listen to their songs, when you listen to a song like Ride a White Swan versus a song like Prettiest Star, Prettiest Star's got a much stronger melody, a much harder chord arrangement, and much more style than Ride a White Swan, which, although it was appealing, was a very lightweight song. And although Mark had a number of consecutive singles which made it into the charts, that only lasted for perhaps two or three years. And as they tailed off, it became very, very difficult to keep that momentum because this was essentially the same song. The same song being regurgitated again and again and it gets tired and you have to try and boost it with different things. Mark didn't really have that capability and he didn't reach out to people who could have helped him. He felt that he could do it on his own and ultimately he stopped working with Visconti and that was certainly a mistake but quite sad that when we started working together around the time of 
that prettiest star and then as he went on and did Ride a White Swan, he was in a position where he appeared to have achieved success, but he didn't ever make it in America. He couldn't get across the American spectrum, if you think of it that way. What really happened was he's working in America, but he's not getting any kind of traction. He's got a lot of traction in England, but it's short-lived because it doesn't have an enormously deep fan base. And his fans are young girls who grow up and they move on and they move on to the next thing. And the next thing is always ready, it's there, it's waiting. It's a very challenging place to be. And in his case, he had a hard time coping with it. The common denominator for both the songs that Tony mentioned there, The Prettiest Star and Ride a White Swan, was producer Tony Visconti, who had a fascinating insight into the relationship with David and Mark because he worked with both of them simultaneously for several years. Tony was introduced to Mark through David Platts, a music publisher and agent who arranged for Tony to produce the first Tyrannosaurus Rex album with Mark Bolan in early 1968. And David said, you seem to have a talent for working with weird acts. You might be interested in this. So he played the LP of a person called David Bowie, who was on DRAM Records. And I heard songs like Uncle Arthur, Sell Me a Coat, Rubber Band, When I Live My Dream. These were kind of all different. And I, and I told him that. I said, this guy's very talented. He's got a great voice, but his style is all over the place. He's not kind of in any one genre. And he said... Uh, well, do you like him? And I said, yeah, I like him very much. And he, and he said, would you like to meet him? And I said, yes. And he took me into the next room where there was 19-year-old David Bowie staring at me with two different colored eyes and big smile on his face. And uh, we had a great conversation. David Platts left us alone and we spent the whole day together talking about common interests, black and white, scratchy films, an American underground group called The Fugs. We got on really, really great. I had a flat at 108 Lexham Gardens in Kensington. And in my flat, I had a gramophone and a guitar amp, two guitars, a bass. And two regular visitors to my flat were Mark Bolin and David Bowie. On one occasion, both of them were there on the same night. And uh, we picked up the guitars and we jammed all evening on Beatles songs, blues songs, you know, anything we could remember or think of. And one record we listened to over and over again was Smiley Smile by the Beach Boys. It contained all the mysteries about how to make a great record. And we used to sit there, play it over and over again, and try to figure out how the Beach Boys did it. So while producing Tyrannosaurus Rex, who at the time were just a duo, Mark and percussionist Steve Peregrine took, Tony also began working with David Bowie. There was a tradition at the BBC to have a lot of music recorded live. I think this was at the request of the uh, Musicians' Union who insisted on balancing the needle time, in other words, you know, recorded music, with live music. So David Bowie was given a shot to appear on the John Peel show, only it was early days and he didn't have a band yet. So we assembled a band of session musicians who were older than us and who could read music off a page, but with great feeling, of course. And I wrote the arrangements for this, and we were billed as David Bowie, uh, accompanied by the Tony Visconti Orchestra. 
We recorded songs like In the Heat of the Morning, London by Tata, Karma Man, Silly Boy Blue, When I'm Five. Steve Peregrine Took was often crashing at my flat, and we invited him to the studio the day of the recording for the BBC. And you can hear Steve singing backup vocals on Karma Man, Silly Boy Blue, and playing tambourine and other instruments. So this actually is a very rare recording, which you can get on Bowie at the Beeb, and you can hear a bit of Tyrannosaurus Rex mixed in with the David Bowie sound. While Tony produced the first Tyrannosaurus Rex album, David suggested his old school friend and former bandmate in the King Bees, George Underwood, would be the ideal person to create the album's cover art. After the King Bees split up, Nicky Most was looking for a solo artist. He'd never recorded a solo artist before. To cut a long story short, I'd got a recording contract with Mickey Most, and I David was very pissed off about that because, uh, you know, it looks like I'd gone through the, the short route to uh, stardom and, uh, you know, won the X Factor without doing any work for it, if you know what I mean. So um, David phoned me up and said, remember Mark, Mark Boland? I said, yeah, oh, yeah. He's got this group called Tyrannosaurus Rex and they want an album cover done. So I met up in Tony Visconti's flat with, with Mark, June Child and David and... I think that was all, actually. We were all sitting around there. And Mark said, uh, yeah, I've got this out I heard some sort of raw tracks from it, and it's, uh, it's not kind of my kind of music, really, but I could get the gist of what Mark was into. He wants sort of William Blake-esque imagery on the cover. He's into Tolkien and all that. So I went away and did the album cover, and it, you could say oh, the rest is history, really. Over the next few years, Tony produced four albums for Tyrannosaurus Rex while also working with David and, as we've heard in two previous episodes in this series, moving in with David and Angie at Haddon Hall. In summer of 1970, the music that Tony and Mark were producing began to evolve. Not many people realised that Tyrannosaurus Rex was a rock group in disguise. Mark played an acoustic guitar for economical reasons. He really wanted an electric guitar and he had one when he was in the group John's Children. But after he left the group, they took their guitar back. But Mark enjoyed picking up my Stratocaster many evenings. Through June, Mark met Eric Clapton. June used to go out with Eric Clapton, and she brought Mark over to his house to meet him one weekend. And Mark said that he was just stunned. He, he couldn't utter a word, which is really unusual for Mark. Mark told me, I sat at the feet of the master and I watched his hands the whole time. This was obviously a real life-changing experience for Mark. And he now had a white Stratocaster of his own. On Mark's Strat, there was a tear-shaped piece of enamel. It was made by my girlfriend, Liz Hartley. We used to go to Hamley's and buy these shapes and bake them in a little electric kiln. And uh, Liz gave this to Mark as a gift, and Mark asked me to glue it onto his Stratocaster. A Beard of Stars was the last Tyrannosaurus Rex album to be recorded, and T-Rex was the first T-Rex album to be recorded. The name was constantly shortened in my diary on calendars on my wall, and other people shortened Tyrannosaurus Rex to T-Rex in their diaries. Somehow, it filtered on down to Mark, who resisted it at first, but then decided to name his group T-Rex. On the T-Rex album, we recorded a song called Seagull Woman, and Passing Through Town were Mark Volman and Howard Kalin, otherwise known as Flo and Eddie. They were in Frank Zappa's band, 
they had met Mark in New York. They nicknamed him the Cosmic Punk because um, because he was. <laughs> and they sang beautifully on Seagull Woman. So that was a, another first that really started changing the sound of T-Rex, the debut of Flo and Eddie. Also, Mark finally cut me loose and allowed me to write strings. He gave me a song called Diamond Meadows, and he said, write some strings for it. So I got a string quartet together and wrote an arrangement for them. And I also played the bass guitar, doubling the cello part. So strings and Flo and Eddie made their appearance on the T-Rex album. Towards the end of recording, Mark wrote a new song called Ride a White Swan. Now the album was finished, it was sequenced, it was mastered, and we really didn't have space for it on the album. But it was kind of catchy. Mark asked me if I could bring the strings back. Could we put some strings on it? Which really was the only thing we did differently. We've been making records like this now for a few years. But we didn't have a string section on a single. Now we did. The song didn't take very long to record. I remember Mark asked for slapback echo on his guitar when he laid down the guitar track, which was the first thing to be laid down. There was no drummer, no beat. Mark just played that kind of rockabilly slapback echo guitar. And he borrowed my bass and put a capo on the fourth fret. Now, bass players don't use capos. Guitar players use capos. But Mark put a capo on the fourth fret of the guitar and played in the key of A-flat. He thought he might just do the same thing with the bass. For percussion, we placed a microphone in the men's room at Trident Studio for the tiled wall reverb and laid down a hand clap track, Mark, Mickey, and I. Afterwards, Mickey played a tambourine along with the claps track. Mark then added a second guitar, a bendy, slightly distorted lead guitar. Finally, Mark added his enchanting, soft, double-tracked vocal, starting out with a magic spell. Ride it on out like a bird in the skyways. Ride it on out like you were a bird. To make more room for more tracks for Mark's backing vocals, we had to bounce both lead vocals to a single track. With only one track left, I called in four violin players to play a simple weaving part. We knew the song was a single, but when we came to mix it, we discovered that we only had one minute and 58 seconds worth of music, and we needed an ending. So... I made a tape loop of the last part of the song that starts la da dee dee da 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 I did a slow fade out of that loop, and that became the ending of the song, which brought it into a perfect 2 minutes and 15 seconds for radio airplay. All of a sudden, we had a hit record. It went to number two in the charts, and we looked at each other in disbelief. We finally got it right. Ride a White Swan was a hit record, and it had a bass on it, and Mark suddenly felt the immediate need for a bass player. Now, I went out on one gig and played the bass for Ride a White Swan and possibly one or two other songs, and in the wings was Steve Curry, who was asked by Mark to come and watch me play. Mark said he wanted Steve to come and watch the master play, which was very kind of him to say that. But Steve was one of the best bass players I've ever worked with, and he joined the band. Then Mark 
wrote a new song. I mean, if he had a hit record, the next logical thing to do is have another hit record. And that song was Hot Love. At the time, I was working with a band called Legend, which had a, an amazing lead singer called Mickey Jupp. And they came from Southend. In the group was a drummer called Bill Fifield. And I loved the way Bill played. He was definitely from the Ringo Starr school of drums. And I introduced uh, Bill to Mark for uh, the recording of Hot Love. We needed a drummer. And I didn't want to work with a session drummer. I, I preferred working with a band member, you know, somebody I was familiar with. And Bill worked out perfectly. And by the end of the recording session, Mark said, you're in the band. <laughs> and I don't like your name, Fifefield. I'm going to call you Bill Legend. While all this was happening with Mark, David was desperately trying to find the successful formula for another hit. Another attempt to follow up Space Oddity with a hit single was to re-record the song Memory of a Free Festival, which was featured on that album. It was very, very long, so we had to do something. By now, we had Mick Ronson on the team. We took a fresh look at the song and decided to do a rock band version of it, a real rock band version. And uh, we went into the studio and completely tore the song apart and reconstructed it and came up with uh, Memory of a Free Festival, Parts 1 and 2. The Part 1, of course, was the A-side, which DJ should have played every hour of the day on the radio. There was a young producer at the time called Chris Thomas, who <laughs> later on did The Pretenders and other great groups, but he was the only one in London who knew how the Moog synthesizer worked. The Moog synthesizer then was not the cute little mini Moog that we know and love. It was a big big thing. It looked like four small fridges stuck together. A guy called Ralph Mace, who was an A&R man at Philips Mercury Records, he was in fact a classical A&R guy. He played the parts that I wrote for him on that Moog synthesizer. That single was the precursor to everything good I did with Bowie from then on. As Tony DeFries recalls, this is the point that Mark and David's relationship began to change. Yes, David wasn't a fan of the music. He didn't feel that Mark's music was important. In a way, he was upset because he felt that he wasn't being taken seriously while he was making what he believed to be, and he was correct, serious music. And Mark was making essentially bubblegum, and the bubblegum was winning. But bubblegum does often win. It's a little bit like literature. You can write a um, lightweight piece of work and have a great deal of success. And then along comes somebody with a really serious piece of dramatic work. And it's quite hard to get that across to a larger public. So it's not uncommon that you're going to have, for example... Uh, Noddy Holder and Slade came along and were a short-term sensation for a while. There was no reason for them to be a short-term <laughs> sensation. Or Mungo Jerry and In the Summertime as an example of something that was very, very popular, but it doesn't stack up against Gershwin's Summertime, which is the real summertime, and... You can't change that. You can't change the fact that lightweight material K 
can sometimes be more successful. And in a way, Donovan's a good example of that. Donovan was very lightweight. There was no great influence. You couldn't take a Donovan song and compare it to a Lennon song. It was lightweight, but it was appealing and it was entertaining and it was in some ways romantic and affectionate, whereas the Beatles songs were often not romantic, not affectionate. What you look for in someone like David, you're looking for something that is essentially heavyweight, long-term, something that will be around. David and Dylan are very similar in the sense that they write songs that mean something. Life on Mars means something. Space Oddity means something. All the Mad Men mean something. And they keep on meaning something for... And here we sit, it's 50 years on, those songs still mean something, and they're most likely going to mean something 50 years from now. While David and his band were putting the finishing touches to The Man Who Sold the World, Mick Ronson and Woody Woodmansey noticed a small nod to Mark's success. I think the last track we were doing on Man Who Sold the World was that... um Packer packers up and rest up here. Black country rock. And at the end of it, David was doing, uh, oh, oh, and we went, whoa, Mark Boland. And that wasn't Mick and I's cup of tea at all. That was just too poppy. And uh, we were like, don't like that. I can't go out on stage and play behind that, you know. So we did have a gig at Leeds University. We were going up in a taxi, and he was going up in his Riley, you know, Riley. And uh, he said, I'll meet you there. And on the way there, we got to a signpost and it said, Leeds, Hull. And we'd been chatting all and we went, what shall we do? And we went, let's go home. So we left. We left him. And he, I think he did the gig acoustically. Because it was just, hell, if it's going in that direction, we're not into that. We're not doing that. That's where Rono came in. We just went, let's have a, oh, let's call it Rono, you know, because he was well known in the area. We were back in Hull again. Trevor started playing bass. Um, we got our old singer back and we started doing university circuit, basically, doing original stuff. And then he called up probably six months later, said, look, I've got management now and I've got this and I want you guys back again. And we got to find a bass player. And we said, well, we've got one. So we all came down. Then he started playing the songs, and, and I was usually the one he would call in. He, would, he had a, a lounge at Adam Hall, and he'd go, Woody, come in, I've just finished one, and he'd just sit and play it. You know, you go, ooh, yeah, that's good. You know, and then a couple of days later, going the, where the piano was, just finished this one, you know. Ooh, yeah. And it wasn't poppy, poppy, no credibility thing. So that's the early part of the Bowie Boland story, up until the point where Mark had enjoyed chart success with Rider White Swan and David had finished The Man Who Sold the World album. In the next episode, Iggy Pop is among the guests explaining the influence of Mark and David during the glory years of glam. There are some great photographs and fascinating articles, telexes and letters from the Main Man archive from the glorious glam era that's part of an ever-growing collection of memorabilia. A lot of it never seen before that we are adding to the Main Man label website each week. A really fascinating record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's mainmanlabel.com. 
And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.